When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Argentina and Leo Messi win the World Cup. We have Socceroos icon Mark Schwarzer just back from the stadium in Qatar to break it all down alongside his Gegenpod nemesis, Michael Bridges, the former Premier League legend. No need to oversell this. It was just the greatest World Cup final ever. I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri, and this is the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Let's get in to the Gegenpod. The World Cup is over, but the analysis is just beginning. Premier League star Michael Bridges, soccer is icon Mark Schwarzer in Qatar and joining us from his hotel room. Mark Schwarzer, you've just come back from the final. You got to experience it in person. One of the greatest football matches ever played. That's how I feel, but how do you feel? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, it's hard to say it's the greatest uh, World Cup final ever because obviously didn't see every one of them um but it's certainly in my lifetime any of the any of the world cup finals i can ever remember um not even world cup finals i think even european cup finals any like as in uh uh yeah european cup national team finals i I don't i don't know of a game a final that was as entertaining um as dramatic as this one i I think it had, had everything argentina seemingly cruising to win to victory france just all over the place to Give them a sniff and Mbappe will, will punish you. So, yeah, atmosphere was incredible. The Argentinian support was amazing and has been amazing throughout the whole tournament and actually got better and bigger for the final. Um, but uh, the overall occasion was spectacular. And to think that, you know, you're in the stadium and, and witnessing an incredible game was pretty special as well. Bridgie, is it the best World Cup final ever? It's the best one I've ever seen, but the best one was in 66 when England lifted it, obviously. Um, but, you know, I, I wasn't there to witness that one. Um, another man that scored a hat-trick, but he only got the ball over the line twice. Uh, this time Mbappe did it three times officially, you know what I mean? I, I think there was a there was a, there was was a a nice moment there. I heard Ali McCoy's doing the commentary over here. The Scotsman was not going to give England any satisfaction, but that was absolutely spectacular. Like you say, the end-to-end stuff, it was, Messi, it was Argentina against France, it was Messi against Mbappe, the Paris Saint-Germain colleagues together. And there was a little fist pump from Messi, if you saw him, just going back to the halfway line in the direction of Mbappe when they went, when they went ahead. And it came back to haunt him almost. But it was, it was just, I think it's very fitting. I mean, I'm so jealous knowing Swartu was at the ground if, to feel the atmosphere, to witness it himself. But even just sitting on the, on the lounge or watching it at, at home with the family, I went through a roller coaster ride, but I'm so pleased of the outcome. I never thought an Englishman would say about an Argentinian after what Maradona did to us. I thought it was very, very fitting to see Messi get his hands on the World Cup. And there's an amazing moment when he walks past it with a play of the tournament and he gives the World Cup a kiss before he gets it with his colleagues. Uh, sensational. What a, what a final we witnessed. Now, we always go back to the 1999 Champions League final, Manchester United scoring those two late goals against Bayern Munich for the most remarkable sort of double strike comeback in the history of football, especially in high-profile games. Mark, talk us through the 97 seconds between 
the penalty goal for Mbappe and then the equaliser that turned this game on its head. Um, yeah, it was wild. And i tell you what, I was with um, a colleague of mine and we both jumped up and actually almost were cele- we were celebrating. And it was just incredible. And the finish was brilliant, was sublime. Um, and the, the whole mood and the atmosphere within the stadium changed. And there was an Argentinian guy who was actually crying before the game even began, two rows in front of us. And of course, you can imagine the mixed emotions they went through. And, and he was crying on various occasions, crying because they were winning, seemingly going to cruise to victory, then crying when France equalised, crying again when they went ahead to Argentina. <laughs> and then so France... you weren't sitting close to Di Maria, were you? Because he was doing exactly the what. same on the bench. Was he? <laughs> yeah. They, you, know, the, you know, this is a really interesting one that I'd never, ever kind of... That we, we know that we know that Argentinians and South Americans in particular, we've experienced Uruguay. We know that they're incredibly passionate. We we understand to a degree how deep it runs and what it means to people. But I was at the press conference yesterday, and I've never been in a press conference, or even read about or heard about a press conference where pretty much every single question that was asked, certainly by any any South American journalist, was about what it meant to the fans, what it meant to the people of Argentina, how are they feeling, how are they feeling to be part of it and, you know, to 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 get their country to a World Cup and possibly win it and what it meant to them. Very little was talked about even the game itself or about their opponents or about anything other than what it meant for Argentinians to be in a final. It was quite, it was very, very strange. Now, I suppose that's summed up by people's emotions within the stadium and people around me, even before the game kicked off, crying at the fact that they were in the final and they felt that it was so close. That that heightened state of emotion, Mark, and you, you spoke about the roller coaster there. What was it like during the penalty shootout? Because if anything, I didn't see Argentina exploding off the halfway line like they did against the Netherlands and giving it the big one. It looked like relief more than celebration, and it became a celebration as... You know the uh, the post match ceremony took place, and then the lap of honor, and then Messi being hoisted up on on shoulders to replicate the Maradona 1986 photo out on the pitch. But the initial reaction, it really looked like it was more relief. What was it like in the stands? Was it the sort of pandemonium that perhaps uh, we can relate to from say the 2005 World Cup qualifier against Uruguay? No, there wasn't. It wasn't. It, it wasn't the same as when they went two 0 up either. I think there was a moment of try- realisation that, it, it, well, it hadn't sunk in. And I also think from the Argentinian players' perspective, so goes to penalties, and I said straight away, Argentina have got this. They're, they're winning this. And actually, uh, before Tuamendi missed his penalty, before he even walked up to take it, before that, the shenanigans that went on with Martinez throwing the ball away and so forth, I said to my colleague, he's going to miss, or Martinez is going to save it. Actually, I said Martinez was going to save it. And... It just felt like, I said it even before, I said, if it goes to penalties, Argentina have got this all day long. And it felt like they felt that was the case as well. And then when it actually happened, it was a moment of just almost like trying to work out what actually had happened. And then they'd, they'd finally got it over the line. And then the emotions start to pour out and then the stadium goes wild and the players go wild and, and so on, which we all saw on TV as well. The the bit I loved is when Messi just fell to his knees. All the players ran off. Some were going to hug Martinez. Some were going to hug the penalty taker. Some were just, there was pockets everywhere. And then they realised, hang on a minute, the guy that has just made, basically 
won us a Copa America and got us to the World Cup final and it's messy and half of them turned around and went, you know what it is? We've got to go back and celebrate. And that was that halfway line moment where they all came and then Sergio Guerra turned up and piled on top of them as well. I just thought it was lovely how they recognised, um, you know, that Messi was the man that, that had done so much of the damage and it was lovely. I, look, I think there's no doubt about it. Messi's a very special player and, and, and was very good at the tournament. But this Argentinian side was a very different one because I didn't feel that there was an overriding expectation for Messi to take them to the final. I thought I felt throughout this tournament there was a a lot of the players actually stepped up and took some of the. I mean, like Di Maria tonight, I thought was on a different level when he played. I thought he took a lot of the burden away from Messi. Yes, the combination play between the two and Messi's always at the heart of it, always instrumental at some part. But I felt that throughout this tournament. Um, there was a lot of players that actually took some of the, the responsibility away and really st- stepped up. And that's not something we've seen a lot of Argentina over the last couple of World Cups. We will revisit Di Maria, but I wanted to ask a bigger picture question first. Did Argentina, I know it sounds ridiculous when it goes to penalties, but did Argentina do more to win this game? The stat that stands out to me, feel free to call me a, a whippersnapper, open play XG, taking out the penalties, Argentina 2.41, France 0.48. So without the two penalties, their XG was 0.48, over 120 minutes, no less. Bridgie, am I reading too much into the numbers, or did Argentina do more to win this game? Argentina, I thought, were absolutely magnificent, right? And what was annoying me, the commentators of this game, I don't know what it was like in the stadium, Swartzy, the commentators just kept saying, oh, the French have had this virus that's gone through the camp and they're really underdone. Hang on a minute, when they got two goals the last 10 minutes, did the virus suddenly just disappear and they turned it on? They got absolutely smashed. The the, qual- the counter-attack from Argentina, the ball possession, and what I loved is the fact that, you know, Giroud was up top and every time that ball came into him, he got absolutely towed up. They were, they, were, they were anticipating the pass. Argentina were on the front foot and I just turned, I turned to my daughter and she was like, I thought France meant to be good. I said, honestly, this team, Argentina, like what Swartz just said, they have all gelled. They've, they've, they've got this sewn up here. And it was going to take something special. And it was big, you know, a big move from Deschamps to change it up. But for me, the overall, when you, when you look at the, the game up until the 75th minute, it was just Argentina. They, they were magnificent. Yeah, no, I, look, I think... That's why I'm delighted they went on to win it. I think Argentina were the better side, no doubt about it. Um, I thought the game management up until about the 70th minute was very, very good. But there's always the risk, right? And I think Argentina have shown that throughout this tournament, that when they do go ahead, they showed it against Australia. They showed it against the Netherlands. They get into that mode of just trying to protect, and they drop deeper and deeper and try and hit the the opposition on the counter, and it doesn't quite work because they're not really looking to get numbers forward, even on that counter. And they've almost come unstuck on a couple of occasions, right? Obviously, against Australia, we we didn't get that second goal, but very, very close. The Netherlands did. It went to penalties in the end that they they won again, and tonight was exactly the same. But I think for 70 minutes, they they managed the game exceptionally well. The first half an hour, they they were brilliant. They were exactly what I thought they would do. And what surprised me was how below par France were. And look... Maybe the virus had some part to play in it, but but France also, I thought froze a little bit. I thought they were they were stunned a little bit. They struggled to cope with with the press of Argentina. They were too slow. Um, I don't I don't 
They completely, completely lost it. And I mean, that was always going to be, that was always the biggest challenge, right? They I lost mean, the midfield battle. DePaul, I thought, has had an unbelievable tournament. McAllister has been brilliant. So, I mean, the engine in that, in that midfield was, um, you know, sublime the whole way through the tournament. And, I, and that's a big reason also why they were able to get the results they did. Um, so I, I think certainly Argentina were the better side. Uh, but you know, you know, you know at this level, and certainly when Mbappe is on the opposition, you give him half a chance, he's going to score. Obviously, two of them were penalties. They did create those chances. They did push forward. Um, I also think, um, you know, the um, there was uh, Turan. Marcus Turan was a big influence as well. I thought he grew into the game really quickly because he needed to, and I thought he was a real handful. And his combination play with Mbappe for that second goal in particular was was brilliant. Let's drill down into some of Lionel Scaloni's decisions because he becomes one of the youngest World Cup winning managers, only 44 years old. He was the youngest manager at the tournament as well, no less, which uh, is to his credit. Starting Angel Di Maria on the left, Mark Schwarzer, talk to us about that. I mean, you get the team lineups almost two hours before kickoff for the World Cup final. So what was it like in the, the press gallery and with your colleagues? And did you expect Di Maria to continue on his... A historical trajectory of playing really exceptionally well in some of the highest pressure games. Yeah, no, I I'm not surprised to have seen him in the starting eleven because you know even though he had the injury and he was used sporadically since that injury, I, I I thought that if he were going to be fit, they were going to play him, and and obviously he was fit enough to play. What was it, sixty five minutes, seventy minutes, or something like that? Um, and that paid off massively because you have to play players like that at that level. Um, at a, in a World Cup final, and any of the big occasions, like you said, I mean, he's proven in the past to deliver on a big occasion, and he didn't let anyone down tonight. I thought he was, like I said, I, I thought he was exceptional. Um, I thought he was far better on the left hand side than he had been in previous games when he was on the right hand side. I thought he was his performance tonight was the standout of the whole World Cup, to be honest. And it's perfect. Well, Kunde, I mean, he come up against Kunde at right back, right? And he's not a right back. He's he's a, he's a centre half, and he had a torrid time against Di Maria. Di Maria absolutely tore him apart. He didn't know where to go, left or right, and he was just insane, really. So that's the good. What about the game management, though, Mark? You mentioned against Australia, leaving the uh, the back door open, and and Garen Quall very nearly walked through it. Against the Netherlands, Vat Veghorst made them pay. It went to penalties. Croatia, they got that right. But then in the final as well, to give up these leads, do we actually walk away from this saying Lionel Scaloni is quite a flawed coach with how he managed the games? Yes, he's a World Cup winning coach, but do the flaws still remain apparent or does it? do you, do you wash away these things when you win? I think they get washed away. It's a World Cup win. It doesn't matter in the end how they got there. They got there and they won it. Um, what you have to say is that they don't know when to give up. I mean, to be 2-0 up and then 2-2, and a lot of times, a lot of teams would fall away by then. I mean, I think that that sort of last six minutes after they go 2-2 was the moment France was going to win the World Cup. But they kind of almost took their foot off the pedal a little bit. That was their moment. That was their defining moment in the game for me. Obviously, there was the other one right at the end of extra time um, when when Martinez pulls off a, an absolute unbelievable block um, and, uh, and and they almost got up the other end and actually almost create a big chance as well themselves. Um, but in 90 minutes, France needed to win it then, and that was the moment. Bridgie? Uh, totally. That, that last 15, 20 minutes, it had to be 
they were dominating, France were dominating, they, they were causing all sorts of problems. Argentina showed their vulnerability, no doubt about it. But once they reset and they all got ready for extra time, you know, he's, he's had a chat with the players once again. He settled them in the control that first half of, of, of extra time once again. It looked like there was only going to be one team that was going to score. Um, so I, I rate him. I think it's sensational what he has done. Um, it, it, and you hear about different things going on in different camps. And all the Argentinian players have come out saying, we've enjoyed having the barbecues together. We've enjoyed having our um, the South American tea that they all have, the camaraderie. And Messi just said it's been fun to play for this national team once again. It's like being in the playground or in the on the park again with my mates. Now, for me, if you're doing that, you, you know, there's, there's something that you were doing right as a coach when the players are feeling about it like like that inside the camp. Let's talk about France and some of the decisions they made. Virus or no virus, you've got five subs in the World Cup. How much, uh, Bridgie, do you think that that affected Didier Deschamps' uh, selection of the starting eleven, knowing that he could afford to burn a couple of subs in the first half the way he did? And then what did you make of the changes and the levers that he pulled throughout the course of the game to try to find something? Because France, they, they broke a lot of records for the wrong reasons, didn't have a shot on target in the first half, didn't have a touch in the opposition box in the first half, didn't even have a shot off target until the 71st minute. And then all of a sudden, they get themselves back into the game with the late show. But uh, Deschamps, Break down what you thought of his performance, and Mark, you can follow off the back of Bridgie. Listen, they've won a World Cup before, haven't they? Where when I think Giroud had maybe one shot on target the whole tournament, so they've they've gone and done it before. Don't you worry about that. They they had a game plan. He had some big decisions to make. We we don't have the luxury of them being of us being able to see the stats um, and the fatigue levels of the players. And obviously, if there is a bug that has gone through the camp, there would have been some players that would have felt underdone. You know exactly how you feel when you are underdone, but. At the end of the day, you 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 pick. He had a big decision to make. Giroud has been sensational after you know Benzema was taken out of the equation for France. Giroud stepped up, um, and obviously he just couldn't handle it. He was feeling underdone. But when he came, this is the thing you've got to you've you've got to look at. When he came off, Giroud didn't accept it. He was absolutely disgusted. He's thrown his bottle down. He's taken his shirt off. So. I think this was a huge tactical decision because the the Didier Deschamps recognised something and they've gone. Do you know what it is? We need to make a change. We need more legs in there. The the hold up play is not working because Argentina were anticipating everything. They didn't. They had to hurt them in behind with the long with the balls over the top because of the pace that they had and pick up the seconds. So I think it was a tactical master stroke. Um, and then in the second half they came out and they changed the back. They went from a back three slash five with the wing backs to a back four and try to win that midfield battle. Um, and sadly, Argentina still controlled it. And Didier Deschamps is just very, very lucky that he had him an Mbappe that was in sensational form. Yeah, look, I think um, when you look at the substitutions that they made, and they, they needed to make the substitutions, there's no doubt about whatsoever. And it was brave to do them before halftime. That goes without saying. Um, not many managers would have done that, I think. I think the fact that he... That he brought, you know, that he, that he took off uh, Giroud, um, brought on Marcus Turan, Dembele. I, look, I, I don't think Dembele was particularly great uh, the whole way through the the tournament. To be perfectly honest with you, I, I was surprised um, he was in and out of the game. We actually wasn't even in the game uh, tonight. Moani, every time he's come on, he looks really dangerous. He he's got incredible pace. Um, I mean, even though Dembele has, but Dembele just looked out of sorts. So I, I'm not surprised about him. Uh, the, the surprise is really starting Dembele. I was wondering whether he might make a change in that in that area, um, but obviously went with a tried and tested. 
um, that he's had in the team that, that pretty much got them through to the final. Um, but yeah, look, I think like I mentioned earlier on in the, in the podcast, I think I thought Marcus Turan was a, was a big influence when he came on the pitch. I thought he made a big difference. Mwani made a big difference as well. Um, the combination of then having that pace up front, having having Mbappe through the middle, Turan, who's, who's, who's a big guy and but is quick and and um and Mwani we see we see the danger that he he possesses I thought that definitely helped swing the game a little bit towards France certainly in that um latter stages of of uh, the second half right at the end of regulation time Mark uh Messi had a shot which he shot from the top of the area and it was more or less straight just a little mm. bit of swerve which forced Loris to tip it over the crossbar that would have been an incredible way to finish the World Cup final. It would have been the crowning moment for Messi as well. When the game went to extra time, what were your thoughts? Were you thinking this is Messi's destiny still? Or do you see a save like that and you think, oh, maybe it's not his day? I think it was at that moment in time, it was anyone's game still. And, and, I, and I think for, for Argentina, the, the, the battle was how do they pick themselves up again? But they showed against the Netherlands when they were, they were 2 0 up and end up being 2 2 that they can almost brush it off a side. And then the start of the first half of extra time is a, is a new game altogether again almost. They, they, they're they very good mentally to to progress into the next stage pretty quickly um, to move on. Because at the time when it was when it was 2-1, 2-2 and France equalised, uh, Argentina looked dead. They looked buried. They looked like they were out of the game. Um, and it, it, the start of that extra time, it all changed. And it just looked like Argentina were getting through their phases in the game. They started to get more possession. France started to drop off a little bit more. And they just started to get more rhythm. And, of course, obviously, we saw the hectic end, and it could have gone either way. So the save was a good save, but one I thought he should save, um, no doubt about it. Um, and if and if he'd scored Messi, yeah, it would have been a wonderful finish for Messi and for Argentina. But we, we probably we wouldn't have got the game that we got, right? We wouldn't be sitting there going. We would said it was an amazing game, but I think everyone's pretty pretty confident in saying it's the best game they've ever seen in a World Cup final. So I think with the extra time, with the penalty shootout dramatics, I think that just all added to the flavour and the excitement and and the magnitude of the game. Bridgie, I hate to bring up 2010, but when Messi scored in extra time, so the ball's gone over the line. It's been cleared out. Uh, of the goal mouth by a defender that's standing behind the line. It's obviously over the line, right? But we have goal line technology now. Can you imagine if this had been the 2010 World Cup final and potentially we talk about the ball being a metre over the line for the rest of time if uh, we didn't have uh, a situation with the goal line technology now? Yeah, I mean, that I was just delighted to see it when it did go over the line. I'm not going to talk about that 2010, don't upset us. It was just spectacular. I mean, he knew straight away when it was in, um, and the way the three players ran off. So, they, you know, that's the joy. And I think the the got the actual goal. It was. It's not just about the the penalty. Uh, sorry, the the goal going over the line. It was the VAR for the offside pass. That was the moment. You know, the, uh, where the defender's backside is playing playing um, Argentina onside. That was the moment when, because the linesman's put his flag up after the goal's gone in, it wasn't about the ball going over the line because we've all got the goal line technology. That's where VR has played a, played a major part in, in the World Cup. And you go, do you know what it is? I, I, I like that because that was absolutely spot on. However, the referee's decision during the game, I thought was shambolic, as Swartzy will allude to. You know what? Um, yeah, 
there was no doubt in my mind that it wasn't a goal because the referee actually pointed to a goal, right? Because he gets the message on his on his on his watch to say that ball goes over yeah. the line. I mean, it's so obvious. I mean, we we all saw it in the stand. I mean, I was actually right in line with that goal line, so it's, it was blatantly obvious it was in. The question would have been whether I, I thought from the naked eye watching the game, I actually thought he was offside. So then, obviously, the VAR—that's what the VAR is there for. I mean, look, this is this is why we have it. And, you know, as close as that was, you know, there'd be people complaining about the fact that well, it was so close. Well, you know, it was only, you know, millimetres. Well, it should have been allowed, should have been offside or it should have been allowed to be given. I, I, look, there's a, there's a clear line. He's onside. It's a goal. End of. Mark, w- before we get into the penalty shootout, one huge moment right at the end of the 120. Randall Kolomowani, we asked you about him after he scored in the semi-final. One of the less heralded players that Didier Deschamps took to this World Cup. And he had come up trumps in the semi-final. What a chance, though, with that one-on-one save from Emmy Martinez to deny him. Did you think that was the World Cup France's to win 4-3 at that point? Or did you always think Martinez was going to make the save? No, I thought. Look, one on one, bearing down like that. I thought. I thought. Look, the balls. The balls in the back of the net, of course. But Emmy Martinez did incredibly well because he he actually closed the angle down, and his timing of spreading himself and the way he spread him he spread himself was the reason why he makes the save. Mwani um, does really well. He strikes the ball really well. I think he hits it first time. He hits it really well. But Martinez does everything right. Um, and and uh, you know, it's a, it's a world class save on the biggest stage, right? This this there's no other way to describe it. It's the moment, the moment in history where you'll you know you'll look back at it of a monumental save that helps his country win the World Cup. And obviously he plays a bit more of a part after that as well, of course. Can I just say it's one of them as a striker when you were through. Teo, it's going to sound completely stupid, but Swartz, you'll understand what I'm on about. It's one of them when you look back and you think, I wish I'd mishit that. Because it's the mishits when you don't connect with them and they do a little bobble or something like that and they go through the goalkeeper's legs. He's, he's done everything right. He's caught it the timing. A couple of people were saying, could he have delayed it and dinked the goalkeeper? No, because Martinez's timing was absolutely spot on. He, he, he Like Swatchy said, he's narrowed the angles down. He's, he's, he's on the front foot. So as a striker, you're kind of going, God, I haven't, got, I haven't got much time left. And he's absolutely pinged it perfectly. It's one of them where you just want to miss it. So let's go to the penalty shootout. I'll give you some of the key moments and you can take the discussion wherever it pleases as far as what you observed and what you thought. Kylian Mbappe went the same way as his two penalties during the actual match itself. Leo Messi uh, went with the slow roller into the net, really held his nerve. Dybala, credit to uh, Scaloni for subbing him on, came on with one job, did it well, buried his penalty. Martinez saved from Kingsley Coman. And the body language before that penalty uh, on the TV coverage that we got here in Australia, they actually cut to Deschamps on the bench talking to one of his assistants, and the coach was showing horrible body language, never mind Kingsley Coman. Uh, Chouamini missed. That one was uh, also Martinez getting in his head, and of course, Montiel stepped up to win it. So, gentlemen, discuss the penalty shootout. The floor is yours. Well, I mean, I think it's self-explanatory. Have you just, you've just explained everything, Teo. I, I, look... I mean, we all saw it, you know, and, and, and I said I said it before earlier on in the podcast as well that at the minute we went to penalties, I said to my colleague, I went, Argentina won this because Emmy Martinez is definitely going to save one, if not two. Um, France, <clears throat> as good as some of their players are, I, it was just one of those nights where I just felt that. And I, and I felt that also Argentina felt incredibly confident about winning it. Um, Martinez has shown throughout this tournament how... 
how confident he is in his own ability. Um, and uh, he's delivered again. And he's delivered not only that point-blank save uh, where he spreads himself against Mwani late in, in, in the end of extra time, but in the penalty shootout again. Um, and not that he saved two penalties, but... He, 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 well, I'm going to say he basically did save two penalties because the mind games he played, um, before Tuami's uh penalty was, 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 uh, up there on another level. I mean, you could argue whether or not it was right, whether it was sportsmanship like, um, but I actually think the referee lost control. So he, sh- th- he that should have been sent me. off sportsy. He should have had two yellow cards, one for throwing the ball away mm. and then one for touching the referee. He didn't get one for the ball thrown away. He got one for touching the referee. That was a yellow card, but his gamesmanship were absolutely. I thought were were magic, like you say. Once it went to penalties and you've got the captain of Argentina in Messi just slotting one as calm as you like with the pressure that was on him. I, just, I can't even put myself in his position, to be honest with you. The mindset of that yeah. Giza, he looks so calm. Um, that's frightening. So when you see that, when you're a player and you see that and you go, hang on, how does he, our captain, make that look so easy? That is so refreshing. He's gone and stepped up yet again in taking that first penalty for them. And Martinez, if the, any of the French players had, had seen him, and which they would have done, and watched him in the penalties, they would have been thinking, well, man, this guy guesses the right way most of the time. I, I don't think he guesses. I actually don't think he guesses. I think it's the research they do, uh, and I think he he reads it. I actually think he's that good. I think he's uh, he's on song because he does the work as well. There's no doubt about it. I mean, going back to the referee is that I thought that he was played the whole game. I thought he allowed Argentina to play him. Um, and I think he, he was too soft on, on cards. I mean, one would argue that if he handed out more cards, maybe we wouldn't have got the same game. Maybe we wouldn't have had the same sort of free-flowing game at times. But he also made it... Th- I thought he was... I thought, I thought the game was beyond him. I thought the game was too big for him. I, I think he was the wrong referee to referee the game. Um, and I think... You're right, Martinez could have... Look, Martinez wouldn't have been sent off in the penalty shootout because had he have given the yellow card to begin with, he wouldn't have done the second bit. The fact that he threw the ball away, that should have been the referee straight away given a yellow card. Um, but he allowed that stuff to unfold the whole game. So at least he was consistent in that regard. Um, he was consistently bad at handing out cards when I think he could have he could have, uh, he could have stomped things out a lot sooner. And I think we would have had a... a, a I think potentially we would have had, well, would we have had a better game? Maybe we wouldn't have. You but can't say we could as, have had a better ruler. game. You've got to be kidding us, man. No, no, it's he probably wouldn't have. No, we wouldn't have. Yeah, no, we probably wouldn't have. But what I'm saying is maybe we would have changed the game. Maybe we wouldn't have had as good a game because of the referee putting more cards out. But the, the bottom line is for me is the referee's job is to to rule the game as it should be ruled, right? And I, and if you talk about the way the, ref, the, the, the World Cup's been refereed full stop, he had, he showed no consistency whatsoever. I want to challenge you on this, though, Mark. So we're walking away from this game saying it has been one of the most amazing games ever. I actually do think the referee, you know, he gave out eight yellow cards over the course of the game. Had there been more, I think inevitably we would have seen reds at some point. It would have led to tactical changes and alterations of the game state. Is it not the referee's job to facilitate the spectacle as opposed to, you know, have a a dogmatic interpretation of the rules. Shouldn't we walk away from a final like the one we've just witnessed praising the referee's performance because it was an active part of producing the final that we got? But I think a lot of of the play that unfolded tonight was borderline... It was was on the edge of... I mean, look, we we talk about sportsmanship and the fair play and the way that games should be played. I I thought it was borderline 
on the wrong side of that. I, I really do. I think there was lots of moments in that game whereby because of the referee's inability or, or reluctancy to, to actually ref the game properly or, or to hand out cards when he probably should have, I, I don't think they necessarily would have been red cards. It just would have cut out a lot of the crap that went on. A lot of the, a lot of the, the, the play acting that went on, a lot of the, the, um, the antics that went on. Bridgie, what's your take on this? Do you think the referee had a good game or not? Um, no, I don't think he had a good game. Um, I think it's been consistent throughout the tournament. I think what we have seen is a lot of really bad refereeing um, referees during this World Cup. I've had a lot of teams have gone away having question marks about the standard of the refereeing, along with the help of the VR. Um, I don't think it was horrendous because I think Messi and Mbappe have stolen the show and they've given us something else to talk about. But there was, I mean, that the, the first challenge, I've got to say, um, on Di Maria, it's still, for me, very minimal contact. Don't know whether that one should have been given, um, but it was. And I'm I'm grateful because I got to see Messi slotted away. But there were some things, the gamesmanship, I'd, I'd, I do agree with Mark to a degree that there was moments in the game where players should have been pulled up for certain things um, and given yellow cards when they weren't given out. And there was other ones that were given for, you're kind of scratching your head going, I'm not, I, I don't agree with that. So he didn't have the greatest of game, but he's hidden on the fact that we've had a world-class game. I, I wonder, like, I've never seen a World Cup or certainly a major tournament where the referee's been criticised so openly, so often by the, by the teams, by the players. Yeah. And the fact that that was actually allowed to happen, that's not normal. I, I, I didn't quite understand that. And I almost felt like the referee f- wanted to make sure that he didn't get any criticism after the game. So, I don't know. It was a reluctancy. I, I think there was a case of, certainly Argentina did it very, very well um, throughout by, by almost putting so much pressure on the referee and always blaming the referee when things didn't go quite well. Um, and, and there were other teams that did exactly the same thing. It just wasn't Argentina. It was a whole lot of teams that did it. So, I'm, I'm surprised at the level of criticism that players and teams directed at the officials and, got, and seemingly have got away with it. Well, for our listeners wondering, Zimon Masiniak, the Polish referee, some of the biggest matches of his career prior to this World Cup included the Germany-Sweden game at the 2018 World Cup. Uh, He also officiated, what have we got here, Uh, Spain-Czech Republic at Euro 2016, the UEFA Super Cup in 2018 between Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid. So certainly taking a, a bit of a leap here, the 41-year-old. But I don't know. I feel like I'm coming at this from a totally different perspective to the two experts. Maybe this is why I'm not an expert and just the host of this podcast. I thought he had a good game. And I think he can hold his head high next time he's in the extra classer refereeing a match between Vizsla Krakow and Schloschk Voklo. Um, anyway, but we will leave the know, refereeing The thing is about that, Taylor, the thing you say that about that, like, you know, if I'm France... And there's a penalty shootout, and and the goalkeeper, the opposition goalkeeper, does actually what he does and behaves the way he does. That all leads to your player missing a penalty because it delays it even further. The player has to go over and get the ball when he shouldn't be. The ball should be there. The referee allows it to happen. There could be potentially a different outcome from it. So one would argue that Argentina have played it very very well and got away with it, and they played within the referee's allowance of the rules of the game. And one would say that's unbelievable work and great, great play by, by Argentina. But then the other side of me goes, well, it's actually not right, right? So there, there are rules that just weren't implement, implemented. And, and, and I, think it has an imp- I think it actually has an impact on the outcome of the game. Let's talk about uh, just a quick goalkeeping point, Mark. Uh, Martinez, he was integral to Argentina winning the Copa America. Now he's been integral to Argentina winning the World Cup. We have seen great goalkeepers at World Cups. Dino Zoff, 
Jean-Luigi Buffon, Oliver Kahn, even though Germany didn't end up winning. We've seen amazing goalkeeping performances where the goalkeeper has been integral to winning tournaments. Iki Casillas, not so much, but he was a mainstay of that great Spanish team. With these two tournaments back-to-back, the Copa and now the World Cup, is Martinez already in a position where he can lay claim to being one of the best goalkeepers at major tournaments in the history of football? When it comes to penalties, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, Argentina had it in the past, you know, Goy Cachea, uh in 1990 coming on as a substitute and saving penalties for fun throughout the tournament and helping Argentina get to the final. Um, and almost almost saving Andreas Bremer's penalty in the final, which was the 1-0, right? Um, I think Emi Martinez, certainly the save late on in the extra time was was up there of being sublime. I, I don't think... there's no, I can't think of anything else in the tournament where I came away from the game thinking... Geez, Emmy Martinez was unbelievable tonight. Other than when the penalty shootouts were on, so and, and that doesn't mean I don't think he's a good goalkeeper. I think I think he's had a I think he's had a really good uh, tournament. But to say that he's one of the best in major tournaments, I suppose if that's encompassing penalty shootouts and whatever gets thrown in, in in front of you, dealing with those pressure and those those situations, he certainly had a major influence and has been huge for Argentina, that goes without saying. Let's quickly talk about a couple of the other things that came out of the wash from this final. Kylian Mbappe, of course, uh, four goals across his two World Cup finals, a hat-trick in this game. Uh, is it now as simple as he is the best player in the world right now going forward? Does Erling Haaland have to start dragging Norway into major tournaments to even get in the conversation with him? Or will a couple of weeks of Premier League have us back saying, actually, Erling Haaland is the best player in the world and Mbappe is in a farmer's league? You've got to be in the biggest stage in the world to be talked about in the biggest capacity. Unfortunately, Haaland wasn't there, but he is doing he has done great things. We, we, we love watching him at club level. And obviously, the, when we see him at national level, he still he turns it on. But they weren't at the World Cup. You're not playing against the best teams and the best players at the World Cup. Mbappe has basically destroyed most players and teams that he has come up against. He's, he's absolutely breathtaking to think at such a young age what he has done. Um, and he's, this World Cup, he's been outshone by the, you know, the the master. And I think it's quite fitting that he, he got the the play of the tournament. Did Messi and Mbappe got the golden boots? They're going back to their club at Paris Saint Germain, and they're both going to walk in there as winners, no doubt about it. And no, my <laughs> at this moment in time, Messi is the greatest. He's got the World Cup in his hand. Right, but Mbappe, I'm just so relieved. We're going to lose Ronaldo. We're going to lose Messi. Just to think that we've still got Mbappe to watch for um, the next next few years. I'm so excited. Look, uh, Mbappe tonight. There were moments in the game. I don't think he did enough in the game. Like he, I, I know when I say he didn't do enough, that's harsh. Enough. He's got he's a hat trick, right? man. I know, I know, and that's ridiculous, right? Because I, I don't know. I just I don't know. I, I expected probably a little bit more from him. You know, even though. The return was incredible, and there's no doubting that whatsoever. Um, Swartzy, the difference between this performance of Messi and Mbappe, right? Mbappe's got a hat trick. He's got all right. Messi had the re- you've just said it earlier on. Messi had the whole of that Argentinian team behind him. Every one of them. Yes. Mbappe had about three or four that came on as substitutes. The rest of them were non-existent. That was the that's the massive difference. You, you score a hat trick, you expect to win the World Cup. They've, but, they've lost it because but, you know, they didn't of course, have but he scored two penalties, right? Yeah, but he scored two. He scored two penalties that he didn't necessarily have a direct influence on in creating, right? So my point is that, like, 
Yes, he scored a hat trick, and, and, and I don't want to take that away. I'm not going to take that away. I can't. It's phenomenal to score at a World Cup final is on a different planet, and, and he's a phenomenal player. We're talking about his performance in that final. He was certainly one of France's best players. That goes without saying, but that wouldn't have been hard because most of them were pretty poor. So that's all I'm saying. When we talk about being the best ever player or one of the best players, I still don't think his overall performance in the game was up there with being, say, as good as Messi was throughout the game, right? Um, so the, the, the bar is extremely high. That's all I'm saying. Yes, he was their best, probably the best player for France, but still not to the level that we expect from Mbappe, in my opinion, anyway. Golden ball went to Messi. Any arguments? Should Mbappe have got it in a losing in a losing cause it's never uh, for happen. his body of work over the whole it's tournament? It's never going to happen. It doesn't work that way. FIFA don't allow those sort of trophies to happen unless it's from the winning team. It pretty very very rarely does it happen. I know I know Modric won it last time round, but it doesn't happen. Uh, very... Oliver Kahn, two thousand and two. Yeah, yeah, but he literally single handedly got him there. Whereas Mbappe hadn't didn't single handedly get uh, France to the final. He had, he, had a, he had a part to play, if certainly. But Oliver Kahn, if you remember that Germany side in, in 2002, they were nothing without Oliver Kahn. He was unbelievable. He was on a different planet. Uh, Bridgie, you'll be thrilled to know that uh, it's coming home. The FIFA Fair Play Award goes to England. Yay! They won something. Does that warm, you? Does that warm your heart? We, we will take anything we can at this moment in time. <laughs> I'm still supporting the Lionesses because <laughs> they're winners. Our boys have got the Fair Absolutely. Play Award. What is that all about, honestly? I'd be I'd be ashamed. I hope I hope when they get back to England that the customs actually take it off them and say you can't bring that into the country. It's a shambles. I'm just thrilled that I got through that question without Bridgie giving me the finger. There was one. Did, is it right in saying that England got one yellow card in the whole tournament? <laughs> That's why we got the fair play award. So you'd be right on that one. Well done. Yeah. And it was in the quarters. Yeah. It was in the quarters. Your last game. I'm pretty sure it was one player. And is that right? Oh man, listen. It was. They've won the fair play. It's either one, two, or three. Who cares? Right. It's a, just a shambolic thing. It's a shambles. I don't think anyone else was anywhere close to him, mate. I think everyone else was in double digits. I mean, Roy Keane was even laughing on the set when the give told him what award England had won. He was loving it. He was, he, he was like, <laughs> brilliant. Stay with us here on the Pod. After this short break, we will put a bow on the 2022 World Cup and we will go back and revise some of the crystal ball predictions of our esteemed experts. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Welcome back to the Gagan Pod. We have Premier League star Michael Bridges, Socceroos icon Mark Schwarzer. In the pod today, we are breaking down the end of the 2022 World Cup. All right, gentlemen, some quickfire questions here to lead off this segment. Highlight of the tournament. What was it? Bridgie, you go first. Highlight of the tournament. I'm going to start with one. It was seeing Morocco in their fan base, how well they did. Uh, as a team, as the the fans, I thought was just brilliant. Not only the, the scenes we saw um, from over in Qatar, but also the scenes in London. They, they basically took over Trafalgar Square as well. Morocco fans, I thought their their journey was magnificent. And the the one for me is just it's it's so fitting. 
It's to see Messi lift the World Cup and that will stick with me. I'll never forget the moment of where I was when Messi kissed the World Cup and lifted it for Argentina. Yeah, Bridgie, I was in the stadium, mate, watching it. So um, that was pretty special, right? But I have to say the biggest moment for me has to be the Socceroos' performance at the World Cup. I thought they were absolutely outstanding. And, and we kind of almost forget about them because, because of um, it was, a, you know, what was it? Probably 10 days ago. Two weeks, I, I've lost track of time. But I think the Socceroos' performance, uh, putting, putting football back on the map in Australia, putting it to the fore of, of every media outlet and, and the, the turnout of people that came out and supported the Socceroos uh, was remarkable. And um, that, for me, was the biggest biggest um, thing of, of, of the tournament. For- Coming back through you, Schwartzy, uh, biggest surprise of the tournament? Uh, Socceroos winning two games and finishing second in the group. <laughs> I'm going to say, obviously Morocco. Morocco getting to a semi-final. And I, I never thought that. I never thought that would be possible. Um, Socceroos certainly winning the two games, um, keeping two clean sheets, winning two games in a row. You know, we broke records as well in doing so. But Morocco reaching the semi-final definitely. Yeah, I've got the same. I've got the same answer. It was Australia because I had them finishing third. Uh, didn't give them any credit and went in there and I thought absolutely performances were magic. And the thing that the two teams that were in the final were the only two teams that had beat Australia in the in the World Cup. So that was very fitting. Uh, Bridgie, your takeaway player who you will be watching a lot more closely now, having grabbed your attention at this World Cup. My takeaway player. Ooh, I've got to say the right back of Morocco. I knew he was a good player, um, but Hakimi. Man, you talk about distance. You know me, I love a start and I love me distance covered and I love me high intensity run rates and things like that. This guy just, he's like the Brazilian Cafu. I love, I just love watching him. And I thought the, the moment for me is when he gets, he goes over and he gives his mother a kiss and just, you know, it's, he's a family man. He's, he's different class and just what a player. I, I would love just to, yeah, put him, bring him home, introduce him to my family and, and keep him as an heirloom in the house. Well, um, I'm going to go with uh, Julian Alvarez. Uh, look, we, we've seen bits of him at Manchester City. We've seen he's got talent. He's scored goals in the Premier League. But the way he's performed at the World Cup, the work rate he's put in for Argentina, um, the goals he scored, uh, was the youngest youngest player to score in semifinals of the World Cup. Um, phenomenal, phenomenal uh, performance. I mean, what he, he didn't play the first two games, came on, I think, in the second, whatever it was, and then from then on, he was the main player. He was, he was a main player for them. Um, yeah, I thought I thought he's been absolutely outstanding. I just worry that he's not going to get a lot of game time at City. We've had the 32-team World Cup from 1998 to 2022 inclusive. Now it's going to go to 48 teams. Mark, thoughts on the change of format given the football tournament we've just experienced? I I heard it was Italy that insisted that it goes to 48 teams. Gives them a bit of a chance to qualify. I mean, that's what I've heard. I mean, maybe it's just a vicious Uh, rumour. To be fair, there's there's only three more UEFA spots. It's not like it's going up by a lot. Your Twitter feed is going to get battered. And it still gives them a little bit more of an opportunity. I saw Christian Vieri tonight as well. So, you know, that just reminded me of Italy and and asking. I thought I was almost going to ask him, what are you doing here? Um, Anyway, um, yeah, no... I'm not. I'm not a fan of it. I have to say. I think the 32 teams is a really good format in terms of the level of quality we have. Um, we saw it this World Cup: three Asian teams, was it two African teams? Um, we had representation from every continent for the very first time in the knockout stages, which was brilliant. And I think that uh, I think we're just at the right number. I think it's too soon to go to 48 teams. I really do. 
I disagree. I'm looking forward to it. If this World Cup's anything to go by with the the games that we have had, the quality that we have had from all continents, uh, I think it's going to be the more games you get to watch, it's going to be so much more exciting. I don't know how they're going to do the group stages, however. Um, that's that's the one thing that is going to that could be majorly affected because the the dynamics of the groups have been sensational. To think that at one moment. We actually saw Spain and Germany could have been going out and the manager, Luis Enrique, didn't even know when he was interviewed after the game that Spain at one point were actually going out in the group stages. So the dynamics of that, I don't I don't know what they're going to do. That might take the shine off it, but for more games, I'm all for it. Yeah, see, there you go. So you've just contradicted yourself because the numbers of teams are actually killing the group stages and the the fact that they're saying, what, th- uh, three in a group and only the top team goes through, there'll be so many dead rubbers. It's crazy. Um, and you're not going to have the same excitement. I mean, they're talking about changing the format now, but who knows? May, try and work that one out. I, I just think they're, they're creating a rod for their own back. I, I think it's too soon. I don't think we need it just yet. Um, I think I think it'll also dilute the quality. Are you, are you suggesting that FIFA may change some decisions and some rules? I wouldn't expect anything of from them, would they? No, never. They would never do that. So. No, not at all. No, not at all. So Gianni Infantino did concede ground in his fi- uh, press conference prior to the final, saying that it would be put on the agenda to be reviewed, potentially having four-team groups for the 48-team World Cup. Is the solution, Mark, just to go up to 64 rather than have eight third-place teams go through from your groups? But then it just dilutes the tournament even more. It dilutes the quality. Yeah, but then China and India, China and India might finally qualify and then FIFA can make a lot, lot more money. Well, that's the problem, right? So it then becomes about money, right? And, and, and well, it, well, what I mean, then it becomes about money. It already is about money because um, the World Cup's not for the average fan. It's for the, it's, again, it's elite sport, a bit like our, our fee-paying people back in Australia, unfortunately. Um, anyway, don't even get me started on that because we're not even talking about fees, all right? Taya, that's your fault. Anyway. Um, I've wound him up. I've wound him up. Sorry. <laughs> I know. I, I, I just think, yeah, I just don't think we're ready for, 48 teams because I don't think you know yes we had a we had a seven was it seven nil at this tournament Costa Rica but that's a blip right because they showed afterwards that was a major blip they Spain were sublime and that can happen every now and then not very often but it can happen but we've gone away from the times where teams come in remember when Saudi Arabia used to come in the World Cup and they used to get beaten seven eight now Germany beat them they used to get beaten a lot they hardly would score a goal wouldn't win a game they're catching up and we're at a good level now. I think next World Cup, there's a big chance that not only a, an African team, but someone, another continental team, so maybe even a team from Asia can get that far again. I, I just think the gap is closing. And I like the fact that there are big teams that are missing out. I actually like that because it just shows you everyone's catching up. Teams can't get complacent. And the competition is so fierce and so intense that when you get teams that go into the World Cup, they are going to be of some real quality. And go back onto what Bridgie said earlier on about the fact that um, being at the highest level, performing at the highest level, um, with the best players in the world, when Holland's not there, for example, with Norway, is it though, are they all the best players in the world? I don't disagree. I mean, if you look at how many big name players, some of the best players in the world have actually missed out on the World Cup, whether they didn't, because they all didn't qualify, whether it's a Salah, whether it's a, it's a Haaland, whether it's, you know, the, the list of the Italian players that missed out. Um, there's pockets of players all the way through that have missed out because their nations are not good enough um, as yet. But that's the beauty of the World Cup qualifying, right? You don't qualify just on right, even though some countries would probably like to be qualifying just because of who they are. 
it's about the process. And if you're not good enough, you let slip up, then you don't qualify. And that's simple as that. All right. What I will do here is I will run through the FIFA team of the tournament and you just interrupt me if you think they've got it wrong and you have an alternative player. We will name our Pod team of the tournament as a result through a process of elimination. Goalkeeper Dominic Lavakovic of Croatia. Does anyone object to him being the goalkeeper in the Pod team of the World Cup? Agree. Look, I, I think it's him or Bono um, from Morocco. I, I thought he was also outstanding. Um yeah, look, that's a toss-up. I, I, I don't disagree either. I just think there's another one that you could put in there as well very easily. Centre-back pairing, Josko Gvardiol of Croatia, Rafael Varane of France. Any objections to either of those two as the centre-backs? Objection. I'm happy to put in Romero of Argentina. No, I'm objecting to Bridgie's. I'm objecting to Bridgie. That's just complete biased and a ridiculous call. Uh, look, I think if you're going to put him ahead of Guardiol, no chance. He, he was outstanding. No, I'm not. I'm yeah, he suggesting didn't... that he goes ahead of Varane. I don't even think that's right either. I think Varane wasn't great tonight. Definitely not. Guardiol wasn't great in the, in the, the semi-final. But I think they've both been, been outstanding. I, I don't have an objection. There. I don't think Romero is anywhere near it. I don't think he's... Look, I think they've had a solid tournament. I think they've been good. But I don't think they've been exceptional. All right. Uh, fullbacks. Acuna of Argentina on the left. Hakimi of Morocco on the right. Any objections to either of those two? I'm just going to ask Hakimi because I've just got him in the house here. Like I said, I would bring him home. Uh, no, he's happy with right back. Um, and I'm going to have to take Acuna out. I'm taking Hernandez, the French left back. His brother got injured against France. I think he came in. He wasn't expected to play many games. And I think he's been absolutely magnificent throughout the tournament. Yeah, look, I, I think either of them could be. I'm, 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 I'm sort of on the fence about that one. I mean, uh, Hernandez, I didn't think had a good game tonight, but then we could probably talk the whole French team through, um, except Mbappe. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, look, I think Acuna was, has been excellent for Argentina. Now, there's a midfield quartet here. Uh, it's been named in a diamond, so again, feel free to object as you please. Two French. Two Moroccan, Azadine Unahi and Sofiane Amrabat, and then the two French players, Aurelien Chouamini and Antoine Griezmann. Who would you remove and replace of your midfield players? Go on, Mark. Um, I would definitely have DePaul in there, Rodrigo DePaul from Argentina. I thought he's been outstanding. Um, it's a hard one. Um, who would I replace? And and, I, and I'm, I'm being a little bit... Uh, look, I think Amrabat has had an outstanding tournament. Um, and uh, sorry, who was the other one from Morocco? Unahi. Unahi, yeah. I, I'm going to say I have Unahi. We're, we're taking him out. Yeah, I think I'm taking him out. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely yeah. having DePaul ahead of, ahead of him. I mean, I, I would even see a place for McAllister. I thought he was outstanding at the World Cup as well. What about Luka Modric? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, yeah, that's the hard thing about it, right? I mean, to, to an army, I think he's been good. Has he been outstanding? I wouldn't go so far as saying he's been outstanding. I, I think he's been, he's been, he's had a good World Cup. So I would probably take him out and probably put Luka Modric in there. And two forwards have been named. These are uh, the two names which would be obvious at this point, Leo Messi and Kylian Mbappe. Would you drop one of the midfielders and make it a front three? Or are you happy with uh, Griezmann, Mbappe, Messi? You see, that's what I've done. You know, I've gone with a back four. I had two defensive midfielders, or like um, Amrabat and Modric in there, and then a, a three with Mbappe on the, the left, 
Uh, Griezmann and Messi as a an attacking three and as the number nine Alvarez because I think the you know when you look at the stats of the goals and the assists, I don't know how you can take them them four players out of the out of the team. So it's um, yeah it's a it's a tough decision, but I'm I'm changing the formation unfortunately too. I'm not I'm not sticking with the World Cup selection of their their diamond in the front two. There you go. Bridgie, I, I look. I, I'm like other than the changes. I mean, Mbappe and and Messi up front, absolutely. Yeah. The question is, do you do you go for a front three or not? I mean, I'm surprised actually they've gone four four two. Really, I would have thought they would go probably a th- uh, four three three. But well, I I think they're trying to cheat with a four three three, calling uh, Griezmann uh, sort of a shadow a shadow yeah. striker in a number ten ish sort of role. So you know, yeah. Well, which, which he didn't even really play, did he, for for France? Because he played that midfield position where he was up and back. Yeah. I mean, his work rate. I, I thought his contribution to France uh, World Cup was was immense. Um, today again wasn't 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 a good game at all for him. But overall, he's had a really really good tournament. So that's the team of the tournament sorted as far as the Pot is concerned. But as I teased uh, when we went to the break, we have a crystal ball which was looked into at the start of this tournament. And I'm going to just read these out and you can critique each other's predictions. How about we do that rather than uh, admit I can critique. I can critique his already. Yeah, you you certainly can. But Mark, maybe I'll let you bat first. Then okay. Here are Michael. Here are Michael Bridges' predictions for the tournament. Winning the World Cup, he had Brazil. That was never going to happen anyway. That was never going to happen anyway, right? Go on. Dark horses. He had a team that I believe finished either thirtieth or thirty first. Wales. Golden boot. He was correct. He had uh, Mr. Killian Mbappe. Golden ball, he went for Vinicius Jr. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I can't really say too much because I was pretty horrendous in my selections as well. Um, but I don't mind actually... No, no, come on, have a go at me first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, look, Mbappe, that's a really good call, obviously. Very, very good call. And, uh, I mean, he's gone with a safe bet there, though, hasn't he? He really has. He didn't really think too much out of the box on that one. Let's be honest. And Bridgie, Bridgie also said the Socceroos would finish third in their well, group. Well... I didn't want to mention that, but oh, I did apologise for that. I did notice that. I mean, as as also an Australian citizen, that's a shame on you, Michael Bridges. It's just very good reverse psychology. It, it, it kickstarted them. The, the, the do, lads do you reckon they the pod regular? Yeah, do you reckon they were listening to that? Yeah. Too wrong. All right. Well, uh, Schwartz's uh, Schwartz's gone first. Bridgie, here you come off the long run. Mark Schwartzer predicted uh, Germany to win the World Cup. All I'm doing is going to put my hand over my mouth and do this, their picture thing. <laughs> Tell you what, we were close. We were close from getting out of the group. We were very close. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, now, the Dark Horses, you, you actually were kind of on the same page because I think Wales were 30th or 31st and the other team down there with them was uh, the Dark Horse pick, Canada. Yeah, but Canada, Canada actually put in a really good performances. They just didn't get the results, right? So there, there were moments in the games where they actually played really well. Um, but yeah, very disappointing. Uh, yep, got it wrong. Definitely. <laughs> still, still a really bad prediction. <laughs> no, 100%. No, other than the fact that they actually had played some decent football in between, right? So that's the only thing. Whereas Wales were pretty poor the whole way through. Yeah, but I did the Wales thing because I was thinking if England get beat off them, at least I can then say, oh, well, look, I predicted it. And I, I did the reverse psychology on that one as well. Yeah, I guess you could say football was the uh, the winner there in Canada. Uh, the golden boot, Harry Kane, Bridgie, was uh, Schwartz's pick. 
Yeah, and I was really happy that he did pick Harry Kane at the start of the tournament because he knows I've got a love affair with him. But again, the big man, he jinxed Germany, right? He jinxed Canada and he jinxed Harry Kane and Swartzy was the man that made Harry Kane put that ball over the bar. He couldn't handle the pressure. Okay. and uh, I'll take that. That's fine. Uh, and speaking of jinxes, uh, how did you assess the tournament of Jamal Musiala, Schwartz's pick for the Golden Ball? <laughs> He's had an absolute shocker. Please yeah, tell me that poor. he picked Australia to go out as well. He, he was did, poor. He? He, he was, Musiala was poor. He really was poor. I have to hold my hand up. That, I got that one absolutely completely wrong. Well, uh, Schwartz did predict that the Socceroos would win their first game at a World Cup since 2010. And indeed, they oh. didn't just do it once. They did it twice. Right. Uh, biggest... Biggest regret with your predictions then, uh, Bridgie? What was what was the one you'd love to do over? Biggest regret of the predictions? Um, oh, Joe. I'll tell you, mine was picking Serbia because they as a dark horse because they ended up 29th. So I was I wasn't close either. Out of a lot of them because I did enjoy watching Vinicius Junior play. Um, Brazil did very well. They were very entertaining. I'd have to say Wales. Yeah, my prediction on Wales because. They they offered absolutely nothing. They were a disgrace. They shouldn't have even been there. And Mark, if you uh, had a do-over, which one would you like to change the most? All four? Uh, all of them except the Australia one. <laughs> no, I look, I, I'm incredibly disappointed in the way Germany played. Uh, yeah, and it... I, against against Spain, I thought they were, they were very, very good. I watched the game live. They should have won the game. They didn't... Um, they got what they deserved in the end. They just weren't good enough. So very disappointed with their performance. I just thought they would be so much better. And I thought Hansi Flick would have them going. And now it just seems like there's there's no ends of issues. And they don't even know whether he's going to stay on as manager. Oliver Bierhoff has resigned. Um, who knows what's going to happen? Well, I have one last question for you, gentlemen, before we uh, put a bow on our World Cup podcasting. Uh, we are six months closer to the next World Cup than we normally are because, of course, the 2026 World Cup will go back to being in June and July of that year. So let's get your early prediction then. Michael Bridges, who is winning the FIFA Men's World Cup in the year 2026? Who is going to win it in 2026? It's um, Well, if England have come away with the Fair Play Award, we, every chance we can improve on that, I'm going to say England will win the 26 World Cup. Wow. I mean, look, certainly you would think they'd have a chance, right? Uh, the question I asked Bridgie, though, will Gareth Southgate be the manager? Yes, he's committed. He will be there. We will have another crack at the Euros. He will be there for the World Cup. He will win the Euros and the World Cup. What? Well, he's got his contract for the Euros, right? So you reckon he'll go beyond the Euros because you reckon he'll win it and then he'll be the manager for the World Cup too. Is that what you reckon? Yeah, I do. You didn't sound too convincing then when you said that, mate. <laughs> well, convince us then, please, Mark. What's your prediction for 2026? Um, oh, gosh, that's a hard one. Um, you know what? I'm, I'm going to say Brazil's going to win it because about time they win it. I mean, they, they can't be outdone by the Argentinians. I think they're going to win it. Um, and there'll be no Messi anyway, so Argentina will be, be struggling. Um, I think... I'm going to say also Dark Horse. I think the US will do far, far better at the World Cup as well because they've got an incredible... He's gone from Canada to the US. He's brilliant. Yeah. No, because they've got an incredible talent, a group of talented players, and I actually think they'll, they'll do better at the next World Cup. Oh, I, I regret to inform you, you are both wrong, of course. The answer will be Italy. And on that note, thank you for joining us on the Gegen Pod for our World Cup edition. Michael Bridges and Mark Schwartz, a pleasure to have your company. Thank you for the comprehensive wrap of the final and the tournament.
Different class. Thank you very much. Thoroughly enjoyed it and lovely to see Messi bow out. Cheers, guys. Get me home. <laughs> so a big thanks to Mark Schwarzer and Michael Bridges and, of course, to all our other hosts and guests on the Gig and Pod as well. My fantastic co-host, Amy Duggan, who has been on so many days during this World Cup and all of the guests, including Scott McDonald, Tommy Orr, Thomas Sorensen, Michael Zullo and Jack Austin. It really has been a fantastic tournament getting to break it down every match day. Don't forget the Gegen Pod reverts to normal now. Next week, we will go back to Premier League, La Liga, WSL, and all the fantastic football action that you get on Optus Sport. Make sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us five stars while you're there so you don't miss a drop. The Premier League does return on Boxing Day from 11.30pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time and La Liga is back a week after. All games live and exclusive on Optus Sport. Thanks so much for your company during the World Cup. I'm looking forward to club football coming back. We don't miss a beat here on the Optus Sport Football Podcast. My name is Teo Pelizzeri. Thank you for listening to the Gegenpot. Yeah.